Progress. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Torah Studies. We're going to want to record this because we have a fantastic class this evening. The class tonight is all about the Mishkan, the portable sanctuary that the Jewish people built in, in the ancient wilderness that they traveled. But it's more than a class about the tabernacle, it's really about the temple. And really the class is, if you saw, I wrote an email, I sent, we send out two Torah studies emails for whatever reason. We send out one to kind of a larger list, a little bit more formal, then I send out a personal email. All right, you may get both, you may get neither. It's all good, either way. Here's the thing. Sandrine, do you get this? I do. You, oh, so email me, we'll get you on the list. Okay. All right, fine, or check your spam, either way. Here's the deal, the email, the second email that I wrote, I, the second email is usually like more clo like closer to like, the first email is like, maybe. It's like, okay, maybe it'll be that, or maybe not. But the second email is usually like on target. So the second email, the subject I wrote was new, new, new. They tell a joke. They say, I don't know if it's a joke. They say, the Irish, yeah, the Irish <laughs> leave without saying goodbye. And the Jewish, the Jews, yeah, say goodbye without leaving. That's the way it is, right? The Irish leave without saying goodbye, and the Jews say goodbye without leaving. That's kind of how it is, yeah? It's comforting, yeah, but it's like things that, but here's the theme. The theme is things that take a little too long to transpire. Things that take longer than necessary to happen. Right? Sometimes goodbyes take longer than necessary. Sometimes, sometimes, building a home for God takes a little bit longer than necessary. So tonight we look at the Mishkan, the Mikdash, and we seek to answer the question, no, what took so long? We begin with the major theme of this Torah portion. The truth is it's going to be the major theme of the next several Torah portions. The, the project of building the Mishkan. Mishkan is the tabernacle, the sanctuary, the temple, the portable temple for God. In this week's Torah portion, we have the commandment to build the sanctuary. We begin immediately with text number one. Let me find this. Hold on. I, I kind of sound like I'm ready with the PDF, but I'm not. In your booklets, you can find it on page 65, and I have this now up on my screen. What I'm going to do is share my screen, and let's get, uh, let's get rocking and rolling. Um, Elio, please read text number one, but nice and loud so that everybody can hear. And they shall make me a sanctuary, and I will dwell in their midst. According to all that I show you, the pattern of the Mishkan and the pattern of its vessels, and so shall you do. Okay, so God says to Moses, this week's Torah portion and the next is God speaking to Moses, sharing the vision for what this edifice will look like. So God says, which becomes kind of the key phrase in Field of Dreams, more or less, right? Build it and they will come, but in this case, it's build it and I will come. God says, they shall build it, make me a sanctuary, I will dwell in their midst. And God says, don't worry Moses, if you're trying to figure out how to build a home for God, I gotcha, I'll show you how to do it, I'll give you the instructions. All right, that is the commandment. That's the opening commandment in this week's Torah portion. And it includes all of the different items and all the different vessels and all the different uh, um, elements of the temple. Okay, now the temple, when we say temple, we're not referring to the temple. Atlanta, when you say the temple, it means something, right? <laughs> the temple is, yeah, the, the, right, the temple. 
Um, we're not referring to that temple, the Atlanta temple. We're referring to the Holy Temple. But even the Holy Temple existed in a different form before, we, before the edifice that we call the Holy Temple. Let me explain. The first incarnation of this physical home for God took the form of the Mishkan, a portable sanctuary that we're reading about in the next few weeks. And it was built by the Jewish people at the behest of God as facilitator, as communicated through Moses, led by Betzal and Aliyah, two different, um, I don't know, heads of the construction project. And it was, built, it was built in the year 2449 from creation, the Jewish year 2449, 3,332 years ago. What happened was that the reason why this was built, why the, why the Mikdash, God's sanctuary, was built in a, um, in a uh, portable way, portable, oh, it was fragmented, built in Shiloh's. Yeah, yeah, okay. So Shiloh's, I, okay. Steve, I think I'm with you on that joke. Now, uh, it was built in a portable way. Why was it built in a portable, portable way? Because the Jewish people were traveling. Because they were traveling, they had to be able to assemble it when they stopped, but disassemble it and transport it through the wilderness. They had, it had to be disassembled. I don't know what the right word is there. Okay. It had to be portable. It had to be able to be pulled apart and put back together again. And so it was made out of different pieces, different planks of wood that would put in sockets. And it was a whole elaborate system that they could build and unbuild at their need. Now, when they arrived in the Holy Land 40 years later, okay, they arrived in Israel in the year 2488, 40 years after the Exodus, you would think, first thing, first thing that they're going to do is build a mikdash, build a permanent home for God. Not made out of wood panels that could be pulled apart, but rather stone, a solid edifice. You would think that that would be first in the agenda. And the truth is, Building a home, building the temple for God is one of the three mitzvot that becomes, um, that, that, that kicks in when the Jewish people enter the land of Israel. Here's what the Talmud says. Take a look at text 2a. Marnin, if you don't mind, please read text 2a. I'm going to pull it up here on the screen as well. Uh, Talmud Sanhedrin 20b. Take it away, please. It is taught in a barita. Rabbi Yossi says, Three mitzvot were commanded to the Jewish people upon their entrance into Eretz Israel to establish a king for themselves, to destroy the offspring of Amalek, Amalek and to build the temple. Thank you. So here the Talmud quotes from a Brisa, the ta- just so you know, the Brisa is an earlier source than the Talmud. It's kind of from the Mishnaic era. And, um, and it's, got, it's got major teachings. So the Brite that quotes Rabbi Yossi, who says that the Jewish people got three mitzvot, or three mitzvot were triggered when the Jews entered Israel. So for those 40 years of wandering, they couldn't do these three things. Once they entered Israel, they got three mitzvot that became, you know, that, that became viable. Number one, to establish a king. Number two, to get rid of Amalek, i.e. to get rid of the enemies and to live at peace. And number three, to build a temple. And, and building the temple means the permanent edifice as opposed to the portable one that they had been schlepping around with them. I mean that in a nice way, yeah. Rabbi, I thought, because I, I never heard they established a king, I thought that came. 
much later. Oh, good. Good, 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 good. Elio is asking a good question. But don't we, isn't it true that they only establish a king years later? Yes. And this is going to lead us to a major question, which we'll get to in a second. So the first point here from the Talmud is, before we get to the question, the first point is, three mitzvot were triggered when they entered Israel. Minu Melech, the idea of appointing a king, uh, um, destroying Amalek, and building the temple, the permanent temple. Here's the problem. Or here's the catch. The Talmud says, as we'll see in text 2b, that this is a sequential, it's a sequential situation, which means you got to follow this specific order. First establish a king, then destroy Amalek, and then build a temple. You can't go out of that order. It's, it's one, two, three. It's not like all three are viable and therefore whichever one you can do first, do. No. You have to first establish a king, then destroy Amalek, and then build a temple. One, two, three. How do we know this? The Talmud details the text to be. It's a longer text. I'm going to read this one and throw in a little commentary as we go along because it's, well, you know, it's a Talmudic text. So the Talmud says, and this is the way the Talmud speaks, Talmud says, I do not know. It, the Talmud knows, but it's saying that one might not know if not for what I'm about to tell you. So I do not know, says the Talmud, which one of these three of the three mitzvot they are obligated to do first. The understanding here is that they're not three parallel, whichever one you can. There's an order here. So I don't know which one needs to be done first. But when the verse states, the hand upon the throne of the Lord God will have war with Amalek. So there's a verse in Exodus that talks about hand upon the throne of the Lord. And then God will have war with Amalek. So first it mentions the word throne. And then it mentions the word Amalek or the war against Amalek. So what does that tell us? The which comes first? Establishing a king on the throne or waging war against Amalek. So first you establish a king, throne, and then you wage war against Amalek. So this says, says the Talmud, that establishing a king comes first. As the verse states, then Solomon sat on the throne, kissed of the Lord as king. So first things first, first thing that happens is establishing the Jewish monarchy. Now the Talmud continues. I still don't know whether building the temple comes first or destroying the offspring of Amalek. In other words, now that you know which one comes first, the question is which one comes second. That's what the Talmud means when it, come, when it says it comes first. Right now that, you've, now that you have a king, what's next? Is it building the temple or destroying Amalek? So the Talmud answers, when the verse states, and he will give you rest from your enemies, then it shall come to pass that the place that the Lord your God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there, dot, dot, dot. In Deuteronomy it says that God will give you rest from your enemies. In other words, all your battles, all your wars will be finished. You'll have finished doing battle. Then it shall come to pass that the place that God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there, etc., then that's, you're going to build a temple there. So first we see the, the, the waging of war and concluding that. And then you build a temple. So you must say, says the Talmud, that destroying the offspring of Amalek comes first. There you go. So now we have the order. What's the first thing that happens? Establish a king. Establish a king. Appoint a king. The second thing is the war, finishing, finishing the wars against Amalek and the other enemies and establishing peace. And number three, building the temple Let's continue, third paragraph. Indeed, the verse states concerning David, King David, and it came to pass when the king dwelt in his, in his house and God had given him rest from all his enemies. So 
First he has peace, and then it states that the king said upon Natan Hanavi, Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within the curtains. I love that line. I love that line. <laughs> David, you know, David was a, was a man saw, who saw many wars. David was a general before he was king. And even as a king, he led the people into battle, into fierce, fierce battle, fierce wars against the other nations, the neighbors, the, uh, the unfriendly neighbors. But then at the end of his life, finally, it was a little peaceful. So he says to the prophet Nathan, I'm just explaining this last verse. He says to the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar. I got a palace, but the ark of God dwells within the curtains. Right, the ark of God, God's ark of the covenant is still dwelling in a temporary structure, the Mishkan, a temporary dwelling. There was no roof. There was no roof. It wasn't a real building. It was a temporary, it was covered with curtains. So David says, I'm at rest, I'm at peace. And God's ark should be in a temporary structure. We, it's time to build a temple. But here we see the order. Here we see the chronological, here we see the chronological order. What is the chronological order? Number one, you need a king. Number two, you need to finish the wars and get peace. And number three, finally, the last piece is build your temple. Make sense? Natan was one of the prophets in the time of King David. He was uh, Nassan. Natan. Yeah, Nassan. Nassan Anavi. Natan Anavi. He was the one who went over to David after David and Bathsheba. After David did his thing with Bathsheba. So Natan Anavi came to him and, oh, he gave it to him. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, there's a psalm where King David reflects on that. Says this is what happened after Nathan came to. He gave him a parable. He said well, there was a guy who owned one sheep. It's a poor man owned one sheep, and his neighbor was rich, and he had all these animals. And then he goes and he's hungry. Instead of instead of his own animals, he goes after this one guy's only animal, steals it, slaughters it, eats it. What should we do to this rich guy? King David said, "Kill him." He was so upset. Nathan says to him. You're that guy. You're the rich man. You have whatever you want. This guy had one wife and you took the wife? He said, you're this man. That was Natan Anavi. He dropped, I mean, he, he does a classic, classic maneuver. He dropped a parable and then hit him over the head with, and that's you. That's your story. He's all in, he's all, King David's all riled up. He's like, mirror? Mirror much? You need a mirror? Anyway, and what's King David's response? Two words. Hashem. I've sinned. Guilty. No excuses, no justifications. I'm wrong. Messed up. Anyway, and thus began his process of tshuva. Anyway, back to our story. So we have three mitzvot that are specifically associated with entering the land of Israel. Appointing a king, finishing all the wars and you know, getting to a place of peace, and then building the temple. And what's the order? That's the order. First you get a king, then you finish the wars, then you build a temple. Okay. And so it was. That's how it played out. By the way, in King David's times, in King David's times, um, one second. Yeah. One second. Hold on, hold on, hold on. King David, want, famously King David, wanted to build a temple at the end of his life. He said, all right, 
we got a king, we got peace, because he kind of finished the battles, the wars, and he's like, okay, time to build a, a temple. God communicated to him through the prophets. God says to him, not you. You're not going to build this. Too much blood. Too much blood on your hands. You have, you've had, <laughs> it's peaceful now, but your entire, you know, your legacy is not one of peace. So you can't build uh, the temple, which is all about that peace. I'm trying to see if text 3b says that. That's so I'm quickly trying to look here. I don't know. Oh, yeah, 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 it does say that. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's do 3b. This is also a long one. I'm going to read this one. Okay, let's take a look inside. Um, 3a we read as part of, the, part of text 2b, 3b. This is again from the book of Samuel, book of Shmuel. Okay, Nathan said, Natan Hanavi, Nathan the prophet said. And now, so, okay, hold on one second. Nathan said, but it's not really Nathan. The prophet spoke channeling the word of God. So this is really God speaking almost in the first person, but through the prophet. And now, so shall you say, you, Nathan, should say to my servant, to David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you, <laughs> God says, I took you, David, from the sheep coat. Not that coat for those listening at home. The sheep coat, um, and fr from following the sheep, he was a shepherd, to be a leader over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you've gone, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you, and I've made you for you a great name, like the names of the great ones that are in the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people for Israel, and I will plant them, and, I, and they will dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. It's going to be peaceful. And the wicked people shall not continue to afflict them as formerly. And even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, I, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. And God has told you, that God will make for you a house. Let's continue, verse 12, page, page 69. When your days are finished, and you shall lie with your forefathers, then, listen to this, then I will raise up your seed that shall proceed from your body after you, and I will establish his kingdom. He, not you, your son, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I hope that text is fairly clear. God is kind of, responding to David's desire to build a temple, God says, hey, David, I've been with you from the beginning. I knew you, says God to David, before you were king. Can you imagine? God says, I remember when you were a simple shepherd, when you were just a shepherd boy. And now look at you, a big macher. You did so much. You accomplished so much. There's peace now, but you're still not going to be the one to build it. Your son, after you pass away, your son is going to be the one to build the temple. Famously, I mean, we know this historically, King David worked on the plans for the temple, but his son actually built it. Um, this is actually what played out. Let's take, take a look at text number four. Um, you know what? Let's, let's read this one inside. Sandrine, are you up to reading text four? All right. Text, let me just explain text four. Text four is how it actually plays out. So we just read how Nathan the prophet communicates God's message to David that he's not going to build a temple. Well, who actually built the temple? Solomon. How did it play out? The oh, time out before we do this text. Let me, let me give you an intro. So this is how it plays out. King Solomon, I'm going to give you a little background here. King Solomon was told by God through the prophets that he's going to be the one to build the temple. King Solomon, Shlomo, is related to the word Shalom, which means, of course, peace. Shlomo is thus called is associated with the idea of peace because he did not wage wars. He was not a general. He did not lead the people into battle. He reigned at a time of peace and prosperity. In fact, it says there was never as good time for the Jewish people as in the, as in the days of Solomon. It was everyone had their 
Ishtachas gafne, ishtachas te'enase. Each one, each man had his gafne, gefen, had his vineyard, his, his grape, whatever, and te'ena is a fig, and each one had his fig tree. In other words, everyone had their, everyone had physically, it was, it was good, there was, there was the, 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 the economy was good, uh, um, relations with other nations was good. It was good, it was good times for the Jewish people. No supply chain issues, no inflation. It was tremendous. You could go in and... <laughs> it's crazy. Man, it's crazy out there. Anyway, whatever. That's for another class. So it was good. It was nice and peaceful. So what happens? So, so Solomon says, at some point, let's do this. He was so friendly with the other nations. A buddy of his was a king of another, of another nation. Tyre. Is that how you pronounce it? T-Y-R-E? Tyre? Sounds like something you put in a car. Anyway, Tyre, the king of Tyre was a fellow named Hiram. Yeah? Or Hiram in Hebrew, but Hiram in the English. We're going to read the English in a second. So King Solomon... Hiram. Okay. Oh, Hiram. Okay. In Hebrew, it's Hiram. Hiram. Okay, Hiram. So, so what happens? Solomon, King Solomon, sends a message. We'll read this inside. And says, hey, can you help me build this temple? I need some wood. <laughs> he puts together resources from foreign countries. Unbelievable to build a temple. Take a look. Uh, Sindri, please read this inside. And Solomon sent to Iran saying, You knew my father David that he could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the wars that surrounded him until God put them under the sole of his feet. And now the Lord my God had given me rest on every side for his neither adversary, adversary nor evil occurrence. Please continue, page 70, a few more verses. And behold, I propose to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as God spoke to David my father, saying, Your son, whom, whom I will set upon your throne in your place, he shall build a house for my name. And now command that they, you... It's like cut, cut, cut down, yeah. You, yeah. That the you may set the trees out of Lebanon, and my servant shall be with your servant, and I will give you hire for your servant according to all that you should say. For you know that there is not among us any who is killed to you timber like the Sidonian. There you go. So he's sending this message to Hiram, the king of Tyre, and he says, uh, here's the deal, my dad you know, was a great king, but he couldn't build a temple. And now I'm going to build a temple, but I need wood. And so he says, Can't, I, I want to put an order for cedar trees. I need some wood. I need some, some, some uh, lumber, timber, lumber, whatever. And he says, because no, no one knows how to cut wood like these guys, the Zidonians. I don't know. The tires, Zidonians. I don't know. I don't know the geography. I don't have a map. So don't ask me questions about if he was the king of Tyre, why are we talking about Zidonians? I'm going to answer, I don't know. But the point is, he's putting in an order, and this king was able to facilitate it, so he puts in the order. Okay, that's, that's the Nakoda, that's the point. And the message here is that Solomon facilitated the temple. So what we have here is, the, is a clear context of the order. Number one, there were kings, Jewish monarchy. We had Saul, David, and now Solomon. The Jewish kings were firmly established. He was the third Jewish king, was King Solomon. Then you had peace. It was an era of peace. So the wars against Amalek, which are now like, not, maybe not literally Amalek specifically, but like the wars against other nations were done, were concluded. Now, time to build a temple. Let's rock and roll. The temple project was absolutely immense. I have some facts and figures. The king drafted 30,000 men. King Solomon drafted 30,000 men to go help with cutting the wood in Lebanon. 
They served in shifts of 10,000 each, cutting the wood. Can you imagine 10,000 people cutting wood? It's unbelievable. 80,000 men worked on cutting the stone that was to be used for the temple. 80,000 men cutting stone. 70,000 men transported said cut stone back to Jerusalem. Okay? And 3,300 people, men, people, oversaw the workers. It was a monumental task. It took a number of years. And finally, they built a temple, and thus it was done. In fact, the temple project took seven years to build. The temple took seven years to build, and finally, it was done. The big question that I told you we're going to ask, I said it in the email, I said it earlier tonight. The big question we're going to ask is, why the delay? Why the delay? How many years do you think it was from the time that the Jewish people first stepped foot into the land of Israel under the leadership of Joshua until Solomon's era when they finally built the temple? How many years? Guess. Over four. Oh, you have the timeline. All right. Well, there you go. Over 400. Yes. Yes. Now that is correct. 440 years. Understand this. 400. How long has America been a country? You know how long? 1776. That's 250 years, give or take. 440 years the Jews were in Israel without a temple. And the question is, what is going on over here? Does it make sense? 440 years? So you tell me, well, the rules are rules. You can't build it until you have a monarchy, until you have uh, you know, the, the kings in place, and then you have to have the wars finished. Why? Makesher, what's the connection? I'm going to ask the obvious question. Who cares if you have a king? Who cares if you finish the wars? A temple is a spiritual place. You're talking to me about physical things. A physical king, a physical war, that's, uh, a physical peace. We're talking about a spiritual temple. Build your temple. And they had a mishkan. They had a tabernacle the whole time in various permutations, like a, a more temporary structure. If you had the temporary structure, just make it permanent. What's going on? Why, why, why the need for the order? Is, does the question make sense? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. All right, I'm going to share the timeline here. Yes, I want to just add something sure. to the question, Ari, that uh, when people went to build pioneering people, the first edifice they built after their own shelters, and not all those shelters were, tem were permanent, was the church, Good. Was the place of worship. Good, good. So, so your question is even more, has even more strength. Right. So we see historically when people, when people settle places, when they found new spaces, if they're a spiritual people, they'll build spiritual or religious edifices. So what's going on here? Now the truth is they had one. They had one even before they went into Israel. It was called the Mishkan, the tabernacle, which we read about in these Torah portions. But the question really is, why didn't they solidify it? Why didn't they build a permanent structure um, of stone and, and like a permanent structure? Why did, they have to, why did they wait so long? Now you say, well, that was a protocol. But I'm asking on the protocol itself. There's a timeline up here, and you guys have it in your, in your books. You're saying practically, you're saying practically they had to have other things in place before they built it. They had to be established, a strong king, good relations with neighbors, good. There are pragmatic reasons, but we need to go a little bit deeper. What's the deeper reason why the order? If you look here at the, at the little timeline, we, it goes back to when Isaac was born, for whatever reason. Then we have Jacob and his family going to Egypt, Moses at the burning bush, Exodus, 
tabernacle erected in the desert, 2449, I mentioned that before. Jews entering Israel in 2488. Joshua passing away, David becomes king. Solomon commenced temple's construction. Temple is completed in 2935. If you go 2935 minus 2488, when the Jews entered Israel, it's exactly, I'm sorry, let me try this again. When Solomon commenced the temple's construction, when they started building it, it was 2928. That's the, that's the year we're going to go by. 2928 minus 2488 is 440 years. It took them 440 years to start building the temple. That is an extremely long time. And I know there's a protocol, there's an order. You've got to do step one, step two, step three. But why? Why? The building committee. Yeah. <laughs> You're not kidding, right? So much red tape. Can we build this thing already? It seems like there's something else at play. So what we're going to do now is take a bit of a, uh, we're going to pause the conversation and focus specifically on the first area of conversation, which is establishing the monarchy. Okay, so the, the mitzvah, we said there are three mitzvot that, that were triggered when the Jews entered Israel. It's number one, appointing a king. Number two, uh, fighting the wars and getting to a place of peace, fighting for peace, but, you know, getting, eliminating enemies and, and creating a, a situation of peace. And finally, building a permanent structure for God. Our question is, why did it take so long? Why, why the need for that protocol? But nonetheless, that was, that was what it is. We haven't answered that question yet. Let's focus on the idea of a king. When, when you and I hear of a king, monarchy, uh, you and I might think of an, a very flawed system. Most of the kings that we've heard about are severely, severely flawed. Now, this is not, okay, let me, time out. Let me take a quick pause here. This is not me passing judgment on anyone saying, oh, this guy's a bad guy, that guy's a bad guy. I'm just saying, what you and I, when you and I think of kings, we think of like absolute power corrupting absolutely, right? If power corrupts, then absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's just like the cliche that we have, and it's so often in history, it has proved to be True, that you have people in power that just end up being super corrupt. So the question on the table is, why the need for a Jewish monarch, especially considering that there's another system of leadership? Who was the, the first leader of the Jewish people? Moses. Moses. Was he a king? No. no, he was a spiritual leader. Then you had Joshua. Then you had the judges. You had, you had, and then you had the prophets. You had all these wonderful people who were the spiritual leadership of the people, what, what were we missing without having a king? Who needs a king? The question is, right, there's a mitzvah. When you go into Israel, you know, start working on a king. Why? Why do you need a king? Who needs a king? Right? So you're going to say, I'll tell you why. Uh, well, first of all, before, before I tell you why you might say that you wanted a king, let's first look at the verses that talk about the mitzvah to appoint a king. Where does this come from in the Torah? From Deuteronomy, text number 5. I'm going to read this. When you come to the land, God says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and live therein, and you say, I will set a king over myself like all the nations around me, you shall set a king over you, one whom the Lord your God chooses. This is actually Moses speaking. From among your brothers, you shall set a king over yourself. You shall not appoint a foreigner over yourself, one who is not your brother. So we have here the basic mitzvah of Minui Melech, appointing a king. Right? You shall set a king over you, says the Torah. It's a mitzvah. It's one of the 630 mitzvot, is appointing a Jewish king over the Jewish people. And the question is that, that, that I'm asking is, who needs a king? You have spiritual leadership. Who needs a king? What's the king for? So the commentaries answer, many different answers, but at the core is what it says in Sefer Achinuch, which, is, by the way, is a wonderful 
wonderful book, text 6, Sefer HaChinuch, explain, gives you the rationale for every one of the 613 mitzvot of the Torah. It explains, it's, it lists every mitzvah, and it gives you a rationale. If you ever wanted to study all of the mitzvot and understand why and what, Sefer HaChinuch, something to consider. All right, let's go. He explains why it's important to appoint a king. It's only possible to sustain human civilization when the people select from among themselves a leader whose laws they will keep and whose decrees they will observe. By definition, people are of different minds, and it is impossible for them to all agree to one person's opinion of what ought to be done, leading to chaos and anarchy. Therefore, they must accept upon themselves the opinion of one person, for better or for worse, so that they will succeed in creating a civilized society. Sometimes they will find this counsel very worthwhile, and sometimes the opposite. But all of this is better than a state of quarrel, which will abrogate everything. So the Sefer HaChinuch writes, uh, he says simply, that why a king? Because a king is better than anarchy. Without a king, who's in charge? Everyone's in charge. If everyone's in charge, no one's in charge. If no one's in charge, then chaos reigns. So it's better that you have someone in charge who, you know, even if he gets it wrong sometimes, than having no one in charge and it always being chaotic. It's better to have someone calling the shots, even if they're not going to be perfect. That's what he says. And we, I think we can all relate to that. The problem is, you know, we've been exposed to other forms of governance. We live in a democracy here, and there's other forms of governance as well. And, and the question really is, okay, so you need someone in charge, but is it, is it really the best system to have a king, like, uh, you know, a monarch, a, a, a king like, like that? Is that really the best system? Is that really what the Torah is saying is the preferred system? What's going on with that? And, and even if you need someone, you know, strong leadership, does it have to look like that? So... There's a very interesting um, understanding of a king in Judaism. In other words, like what a king really is about. There's a very interesting Jewish angle on this. But first, I feel like I want to clarify the two questions. Question number one is, this is all about a king. Why do you, what? Question number one, why do you need a king if you have Moses? Question, or spiritual leadership. What do you need a king for? Question number two is, even if you need physical, pragmatic leadership, why a king? Why not some other form of governance? Okay, so to answer the second question, we're going to say the following. That, I'm sorry, we answered the second question by saying that, well, you need someone who's strong, but then we said, well, maybe it's corrupt, so we're kind of still stuck with that question. So we're going to look now at what it says in Judaism about kings. The Torah says that a king needs to be accountable to a higher power. Much like Hebrew national hot dogs that answer to a higher authority, the king also must answer to a higher authority. In Judaism, Judaism is very different than other civilizations, societies, etc. In other societies, the king was the divine, was the, you know, the supreme leader. In Judaism, the king is subservient to God Almighty. The king is told that he has to be humbled, that he has to always carry around the Torah. He has to be subservient to Hashem, to God. Let's take a look at how Rambam, Maimonides, puts this. This is very interesting. Very, very, um, you know, precise language in text number 7, page number 73. He says, In all matters, the king's deeds shall be for the sake of heaven. His purpose and intent shall be to elevate the true faith 
and fill the world with justice, destroying the power of the wicked and waging the wars of God. In other words, the king is not about himself. It's not about his own ego. It's not about amassing wealth. It's not about consolidating power. That's not a Jewish king. That's not the intent of a Jewish king. All right. I'm, I don't know if I should mention this or not, but I'm sure you guys know. Uh, the Jewish monarchy, after a few generations, went off the rails a little bit and became corrupt, even within Israel and within the Jewish people. So the ideal is an ideal, and it's not always put in practice, but at least there's an ideal and a concept of what it is. And here's the concept. It's that the king should be subservient to God. The king should be you know, uh, self-abnegated to a higher authority. That's the way it is. Um, which explains, in a very real way, why when the Jewish people first asked Samuel the prophet, Shmuel Anavi, it's another, not Nathan, Sh Samuel, Shmuel Anavi, for a king, his first response was, what you talking about? Take a look, text 8. This is when the Jewish people first asked for a king. And the elders of Israel gathered and came to Samuel to Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you've grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now set up for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And the, thing, and the thing was displeasing in the eyes of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to God. And God said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people, according to all that they will say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from reigning over them. So it seems like Samuel's unhappy, even God's unhappy. You ask for a king, oh, you, you don't love me anymore, you're asking for a king. What's going on? Didn't God say in the Torah to appoint a king? Now God's upset that they are appointing a king. It seems a little bit, uh, um, I don't know, uh, contradictory, right? The Torah says, appoint a king. Samuel says, how dare you? God says, oh, you think it's against you? They hate me. What's, go like, what's, what's really going on here? Is a king good or not good? So the commentators explain. The Barbanel says, uh, let's do, do, do this inside. It's a very powerful text over here. Text number nine. He says there are two possible kinds of kings. One is a king who submits to the authority of the Torah and the mitzvot. The other is one who assumes absolute authority of his own, making his own laws and doctrines however he desires, like the kings of nations of old. So you have one king, right? You have one king who is true to, true to Torah and mitzvot. And he's a messenger, he's a vehicle, he's transparent to the source. And you have another king who says, this is me, this is my rule, you got it. And that's a king who's uh, corrupt. The first kind of king is desirable. Concerning him, the Torah commanded, you shall set a king over you. In other words, the first king, that's the one that the Torah commands. He's commanded to follow the Torah and the mitzvot, as the verse states, he shall write for himself two copies of the Torah, he shall read it, so that his heart will, be, will not be haughty over his brothers, and so... He will not, re and so that he will not turn away from the commandment, either to the right or to the left. Let's continue page 76. But the second king, sorry, the second kind of king causes great harm. With unlimited power, he will not protect true, true righteousness and justice. And who can tell him what to do? But the Jewish people didn't ask for the first kind of king. They said, let us be like all the other nations and let our king judge us. In other words, a king with absolute power to make his laws as he, fits, as he sees fit, like the Gentile kings. In other words, the Torah says, appoint a king that's righteous. When the people asked for a king, they were asking like all the other nations, which is a corrupt form of governance. So Samuel says, what are you doing? God says, what are you doing? What are they doing? But that's what they wanted. They, lo they looked around. They said, everyone else is a king, so we also want a king. All right, let's, let's leave that little wrinkle aside. The point here is that a Jewish king is not meant to wield absolute power. 
We think, we asked before, like, even if you need a strong, you know, leadership, why a king? Kings are so fraught with, uh, with corruption. And the answer is, and again, it's an idealistic answer, but the answer nonetheless is, well, that's not the vision of a Jewish king. The vision of the Jewish monarchy is not to wield absolute power. You have to listen to me. The king is completely transparent and subservient to the will of God. So the king doesn't have his own agenda. It's God's agenda. Are you with me on this? And it's not like some sort of, I'm God, so this is God's agenda. This is legitimately <coughs> the, tame, the same Torah scroll that everyone's got is the same law that the king is upholding. The king is not creating his own law. We already got a law from God. It's called the Torah, the Torah mitzvot. So let me just explain where, where we're up to because we have a lot of ideas and let me just uh, make sure we're all on the same page. <laughs> we're talking about a king, which is, we said when they entered Israel, there was three steps. Step one, appoint a king. Step two, finish the wars. Step three, build a temple. And we ask, why push off building a temple so far? Why do you have to wait till you have all the other things lined up? Just build a temple right away. Come on. Ganukshain, build a temple. You have to wait till you have everything in place? Build a temple. So we said, all right, before we get to that answer, let's talk about a king, which is step one. What does it mean to appoint a king? Why do we need a king? Don't you have Moses? Who needs a king? So we explained that, yes, you have Moses, spiritual leadership, but you need strong physical leadership. Then we said, but strong physical leadership could be corrupt, but not in the vision of Torah. Torah's vision of a king is not a corrupt king. I, but if, now the first question comes back, because if the vision of a Jewish king is someone who's transparent to the Torah, well, then isn't that a spiritual leader? Don't we have Moses? Are you with me in how we're trying to have it both ways? It's like, you, why do you need a king? We have Moses. So the answer is because you want someone like a str physical strong leadership. But that could be corrupt. No, 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 no. The, the Torah's vision of a king is spiritual leadership. <laughs> so then we have Moses. So now what? Why do you need a king? So the answer is it's a bit of a hybrid. On the one hand, the king is humble and the king is transparent to divine will. But at the same time, the king is a strong authority. Not his own authority, divine authority on some level, like transparent to divine authority, but still a strong, a strong authority. And that strong authority is, instills fear and awe within the people. And as the people have fear and awe of the king, it's really not the king that they're fearing and awing. It's really the king's king, God Almighty. I'm going to share with you a text from the Rebbe where the Rebbe explains this in beautiful language. This is text number 10. I like the title here. A king reflects God's reign. The commandment you shall set a king over you is about awe. In spiritual terms, a king represents a unique degree of fear of heaven. His being is subsumed before God and through the king, this kind of awe and self-abnegation extends to the whole nation. What this means is as follows. The king is abnegated, is nullified. The king is wholly dedicated to God. The people are wholly dedicated to the king. So A equals B and B equals C. A equals C, right? We all know the math. If A equals B and B equals C, well, then A equals C. If the people are subservient to the king and the king is subservient to God, so guess what happens? The people are subservient now to God. If the king gets in the way of that, then there's corruption. But if the, the whole point is the people are not subservient to a spiritual leader like Moses. Moses is a teacher. He's a, he's a, he's a leader. He's got that stuff, but he's not an authority. He's not a king. 
Moses is not a king. A king instills a sense of fear and a sense of awe, which is good. It's your Shemaim, fear of heaven. So when the people have an awe for the king, they can also have an awe for, for, for God Almighty. When, when the monarchy, when the czar in Russia was overthrown, the czarship, I don't know how you say it, um, was, uh, was overthrown, the Bolshevik Revolution, right, 1917. So the Chassidim in Russia said, ah, now we lost all the terminology in Chassidus about king. And there, in Chassidus is rich, Hasidic philosophy is rich with parables and analogies that compare our, our relationship with God like the people's relationship with a king. But if you don't have a king, then you can't relate to these parables, and it's harder to relate to God as a king. You with me on this? When you don't have a king, when you don't have an authority figure on that level, it's hard to relate to God as an authority figure. See, you and I have no idea what we're talking about right now with a king. Why? Because we don't have a king. Literally, half this conversation is not even an accurate conversation. Because we talk about having awe for a king, and you're like, I don't know, I don't even know what that means. Well, right? No one that's even if it's a king somewhere. Yeah. Are you saying nowadays? I don't think they never have this role. Because it's... Yeah, because it's, it's like for show, like in, in the Queen of England. Are you kidding me? Come on, that's like uh, whatever. I mean, no disrespect. I'm just saying that's not like a, I don't know if anybody who's in awe of the Queen of England they are in, afraid, you know, in the state of like, you know, heightened state of, 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 of awe. That's not a thing. But back in the day when there was a king, <laughs> it was a real deal. The king, you know, that, that's it. So, so there's a sense of awe, a sense of even fear on some level. And that helps a person... Get to that place with God when the king is a, is a legit king, according you know the, in the Jewish way. Then it gets to that place. So what we've established here is the foundation, the concept behind a king. So just to recap, and you're going to see how this comes in soon. A king does no, a number of things. The king establishes a solid you know, so rules and regulations and laws for the country, makes sure that the country is good. A king like Solomon creates good relations with the other countries, and a king is also a spiritual conduit to attach the people to God, right? The king, by being transparent to God, allows the people to also have a relationship with God on a different level because there's a king, and that's showing a model for that type of, of, of relationship that people can have with, with God. So the king really has multiple roles. There's an internal, there's a, there's a, there's a role for the, for the nation, there's a role for other nations, and there's a spiritual role as well, which takes us back to the three mitzvot, that kicked in when the Jewish people went into Israel. When the Jews went into Israel, we said there were th three mitzvot. Mitzvah number one, appoint the king. Mitzvah number two, finish the wars. And, and mitzvah number three, build a temple. In general, these refer to three necessary components of any nation. Any nation, any civilization needs all three things. Number one, you need a king. We just explained the king itself has three parts. But the basic idea of a king is a strong nation. Strong, I'm going to use the word infrastructure. Strong infrastructure, right? Not like the Pittsburgh Bridge, but strong infrastructure, right? Um, strong infrastructure, that's what a king helps facilitate. A strong nation inside good laws, good governance, a strong nation. Number two, that's the first mitzvah of Minimal appointing a king. The second one is finishing the wars and establishing peace. The second necessary criteria for any nation, not only a strong infrastructure, but a good foreign policy. 
Every nation needs a good foreign policy and peace with its neighbors. You could be the strongest inside, but if everyone's gunning for you, it's not going to be a good situation. You need a strong, you need a good um, domestic policy. You also need a good foreign policy. That's the second mitzvah. You with me on this? And the third, third mitzvah is a temple. What does that mean? In addition to domestic strength, in addition to foreign relations, you also need a vision. You need a mission. You need a spirit. You need a culture. You need something bigger than just we're here and we're doing this and that. You know, we're, 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 we're just living our lives. You need something bigger to take people in the country and inspire them. That's what every nation needs. Every nation needs three things. Internal building, external bridge building, and a spirit. Some sort of goal, why, purpose, meaning, some sort of national spirit. Every nation needs a king, finishing the wars, and a temple. And as the Rebbe explains, all three are necessary. You can't have one without the other. You can't have one with the other, without the other. Text number 11. Take a look at, look at how the Rebbe explains this or describes this. It's not going to be exactly the way I'm saying it, but this is, you'll, you'll, you'll sense the energy here. These three mitzvot, as Rashi says, depend on one another. In other words, although they are three separate mitzvot, each of them also contains, oh, sorry, also contributes to the complete picture of the other two. The mitzvah of appointing a king is fully achieved when the mitzvot of destroying the offspring of Amalek and of building the permanent temple are complete. Similarly, with regard to the others, the complete picture of the mitzvah to build the temple is connected with fulfilling the mitzvah of appointing a king and destroying the offspring of Amalek. In other words, you can't really have one without the other. Let me translate this down practically. Imagine you have a very solid infrastructure within a country, but no peaceful relations. Well, that's not going to work out, right? Or imagine if you have peaceful relations with another country. Yeah, everyone likes you, but your country is, is falling apart. That's also not good. Imagine if you have a solid infrastructure, in other words, good domestic policy, you have great foreign policy, but why are you? What are you about? You know what happens? The nation erodes. And here's a historical fact, and you all know it to be true. I'm not going to tell you anything you don't know, but let me frame it maybe in a way that will get you thinking a little bit. Every great civilization, every single one of the great civilizations that's ever risen has fallen. And it's always been the same thing. Different places, different names, different eras, same story. They eroded from within every single time. At some point, no matter how beautiful the roads were, how wonderful the amenities were, and how great they were with other countries, it didn't make a difference. At some point, there was infighting. They were not, the people in the, in the country, in the nation, were not on the same page. That's the third element, the spiritual element. They did not have the same why and wherefore. They didn't see the vision of the country the same way. And when you have a nation that has spiritual erosion, ultimately it breaks down, it corrodes from the inside. Without spirit, you could have the most wonderful looking outside. If there's no spirit, if there's no soul, it erodes from the inside. Every single nation. At some point, just read up on Rome. Read up on the ancient Roman civilization and see what happened.
At some point, the people said, enough, we're done. We don't see this vision. It's not for us. We're out. And then it collapses. All it takes is a little bit of this, and the whole house of cards crumbles. That's the way it is. Huh? Finished. Exactly. It's done. It's finished. That's the way it is in life. That's the way it is in history. In history, you have a nation, people that are not seeing eye to eye, that don't have a vision, that don't have a collective spirit. We know this. We know that when there's a collective spirit, it doesn't matter how tough the odds, we're going to get it done. If we want it, if we're working together to want it, so you could have the greatest, you could have the greatest amenities. Doesn't matter. You could have the greatest foreign relations. Doesn't matter. The key to any civilization is its spirit. Now, of course, if you have the spirit, but you don't have, you don't have uh, running water, you got a problem also. Right? And at some point, that's going to you know, make disillusionment, and, and people are going to be like, what are we rah rah rahing? Like, what's, what's up with that? Right? So you need all three. This is the spiritual, the deeper message, not spiritual, the deeper message of the three mitzvot. God says, you're going into Israel, you're about to establish a nation, a civilization. Until now, you've been roaming, right? Half Torah will travel, we're roaming, 40 years of roaming. But now you're about to settle. What do you need? Three keys. You understand what we're doing here? We're breaking down these three mitzvot in a practical way. You need mitzvah number one, you need a king. You need a good for you need a good domestic policy. Number two, you gotta finish the war against Amalek. No more wars, peace. Finish it off. Get, 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 get things sorted out with your with your with your neighbors. But step three, you gotta build a temple. Now we asked before at the beginning of the class, why build the temple last? Well, there's a powerful message here. The message here is that it's not last in the sense that it's least important, but last in the sense that it's most important. Because even if you have the other two. If you don't have a temple, if you don't have that spirit, then the other two are meaningless. The other two will not last. If you don't have a temple, if you don't have a spirit, then the other two are not going to last. As it is in nation building, it's in human building. As it exists in the microcosm, it ex sorry, the macrocosm, it exists in the microcosm. Let's now translate this on a human level, on a personal level. Every single person has these same three areas in their life, in our life, your life, my life, we have all three areas. Number one, appointing a king. What does that mean? The internal stuff. That refers to personal growth. Everyone has to grow as a human being. Personal growth. Uh, um, work on your skills. Hone your abilities. Hone your skills, right? Work on yourself. Step one. Step two, peace. We have to also not only work on ourselves, but also be a mensch to others. We have to have healthy relationships. That's step two. You guys with me so far? Yes? Makes sense? Step one, appointed king. That is self-development, self-growth, personal development. Step two, amalek, wars, finish that off, get peace. That means healthy relations with others. But step number three is the critical one. Step number three is the critical one, and that is building the temple. Spiritual growth. You can master the art of business and you can be someone who, I don't know, what I'm trying to think of, like self-help books here. Whatever. You can have all the self-help stuff in the world and you can have healthy relationships. But if we don't nurture our spirit, if we don't give space to a connection that transcends self, 
Not that builds self or, or connects herself to others, but that transcends self. Ultimately, ultimately, it's not sustainable. Every human being desires, not, not desires, needs the oxygen with which to live. And the oxygen is not the self-serving oxygen or even the other-serving oxygen. It's the oxygen of transcendence. It's, this, it's, the, it's the notion that I'm living my life for a higher purpose, not just for me. Self-help could ultimately be very narcissistic. I'm not saying it is. It could be. It could be. It could be I'm building myself up. Why? Building myself up, okay, could be very self, self-serving. I mean, it is by definition self-serving. It's, self, it's, self, it's personal development. But it's not a bad thing necessarily, but if it's only that, then it might, be, uh, might end up not, not being so good. Even relationships, I'm getting out of myself, having healthy relationships, that's a great thing. It's a necessary thing. It's one of the, one of the three mitzvot that, that are necessary for civilization, for a human being to exist. Okay, it's very good. But without the third element, ultimately it crashes. The Talmud says, ish isha." Man and woman. Ish v'isha. Man and woman in Hebrew. Ish, isha. They share the same two letters. Aleph and shin. Aleph and shin. Ish, isha. Right? Sounds similar. Aleph and shin. Make the word ish. Ish is fire. But the difference is that ish, man, has a yud in the middle. Aleph, yud, shin has a yud. And isha, woman, has aleph, shin, hey. So in other words, the uncommon letters are yud and hey. Put those two letters together. It's yud and hey, which is God's name. So the Talmud says... Ish v'isha, when God is amongst man and woman in a relationship, when God is present, you have ish and isha, and they can get together. Man and woman, they can be together. But take away the yud and the hey, take away God, take away the spiritual element, take away the temple, take away the third mitzvah, and what do you have left? Take away the yud and the hey. You know what you have? Fire and fire, and I'm going to say the following two words, good luck. <laughs> take away a sense of something higher, Good luck. Good luck. Good luck. Why? You know, when two people are committed to something higher, they can be mavatar a little bit easier. And mavatar means, mavatar means, I don't need to be right. I don't need to be my way. Why? Because it's not about me anyway. It has to be my way. What's my way? We're here for a higher purpose. We're together for a higher purpose. We're here to build a home that's a space for God to be in this world and to raise a family and to be in the community. It's a, high, it's a completely different picture. I have to be right? We have to watch my movie tonight? My movie? What kind of musig is that? Whoever said such a thing? We have to eat at my restaurant? My restaurant. Right? I want Chinese. Pfft. Who's I? Everybody would agree on that one. Everyone would agree on that. <laughs> it's like who... Yeah, I stand on ceremony because I have to be right. When, when, there, when God is out of the picture, even the relationships ultimately are not sustainable. Ish v'isha, without the yud and the hey, ish, ish, fire against fire. Volatile, very volatile. You know what happens when fire turns against fire? That's a big fire. It's a big conflagration. So my friends, here's the point. God says to us, God says to us the following. When you head into Israel, when you're about to establish a society, make sure you do these three things. Make sure you appoint the king. Make sure you establish peaceful relations with other nations. And make sure you build a temple. Every society needs a healthy infrastructure, healthy foreign policy, and a reason to be. A reason to exist. And everyone has to know that. Because if we don't know why,
then what are we doing? If we don't know why, what are we doing? And the same thing is true with us as individuals, because each of us is our own nation. Each of us is our own sovereign entity. We have to have a king. We have to have solid infrastructure, self-development, personal development. We have to have peaceful relations with others, good interpersonal relationships. But at the end of the day, the third mitzvah is the most important, and that is building the temple. We have to have a why. Viktor Frankl said, if you have a why, you can tolerate any how. If you don't have a why, yeah, we have to have the why. So, my friends, as we reflect on tonight's class, let us... The danger in propping up any one of the three is that it seems like, well, that's the only important thing. I, I really want to conclude by highlighting, by mentioning how important all three are. It's not, it's, not like a, it's not a contest. Who's more important? All three. So let us personally commit to working on ourselves, becoming better, more talented, more creative, whatever it is, human beings. Let's work on ourselves. Number one. Number two, let's work on our relationships, how we show up for others, how we accept others in our lives, a little bit more tolerance of others, etc. And step number three, let's know why we're here. Because once we know that, then we can accomplish anything. Thank you very much for joining me tonight for Torah Studies. Hope this made sense. Yeah. And um, listen, there's nothing like Torah. I'm just going to say, there's nothing like Torah. So, so the answer to the question, new, no. when are you going to build the temple? You know what the answer is? The answer is that everything has its time. And sometimes, sometimes you need to set up other things to get to that space where you can really be ready to build your temple. But your temple you have to build. Because without the temple, without the spirituality, nothing is, nothing is really ultimately sustainable. All right. Thank you for joining me for Torah Studies. Questions? We'll, stay, we'll stick around for questions, comments. Yeah. Three mitzvot part of the 613? Yeah. These three are, are of the 613. Yeah. These are three that are, that are very much linked to the land of Israel and very much linked to each other. They're almost like, I don't know, like a group. A group of mitzvot. Good. Questions, comments? Um, um, oh, yeah. So that uh, Moshiach will come from the king? Moshiach is going to come from the, from the family of David. If you know any good candidates, let me know. Because we're... <laughs> we, we, could, we could do for some, uh, for some global redemption. Yes. It's, it, it wouldn't be a bad thing. It would not be a bad thing. All right, Donna, jump in. Yeah, so with the kings, was there any criteria given, you know, in the Torah or Hashem? And was it, did the kings have any direct communication or prophecy with Hashem? Excellent questions. Excellent questions. So, yeah, there are criteria, there, there are criteria for kings. First of all, they had to be from the right family. Um, I mean, at least once King David became king, then it was his family. Um, but it has, to, it has to be righteous scholar, etc. That was like the basic criteria. Somebody who's God-fearing. The Torah also gives some limitations on a king's power. Not too many wives, not too much money, not too many horses. Like, not living a life of indulgence. I mean, no, that's what it said. Literally, those are the three yeah, things. I remember. Right? Don't have too many horses. Not too many wives. 
No, well, but the Torah gives a rationale for the horses part. Because the horses are found, good horses are in Egypt. And then you're going to want to go down to Egypt, and that's going to cause a whole kerfuffle. It's whatever. That's not for now. But the point is, yes, the Torah does give criteria for a king. Um, what's, but Did Solomon have a bunch of wives and concubines? About that. About, yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm not... I, I don't, I can't, yeah, he did. How that works, I guess he said, if I had one more, it would be too much. <laughs> the Torah doesn't quantify, it just says don't have too much. So I guess it's a little open, slightly open-ended. But by the way, I will say, um, th that wasn't necessarily a positive thing all the way through. I mean, it might have led to some, you know, ultimately to something. Whatever, I, listen, it's... Um, if you have a hundred wives, you could conceivably have a hundred mother-in-laws. This is true. He had a lot of jewelry, and he had to spread the wealth across all these women. That's, that's, sure. I'll, why not? But hold on, Donna, you asked two, I feel like you asked two parts of the question. But also, was there any, do the kings have any kind of direct communication? Yes, thank policy? you. So typically, the kings, um, well, not typically. The, all of the kings lived in eras when there were prophets. So the prophets would kind of share the message with the kings. The prophets would be like, hey, king, here's what's going on. I don't know if the, I don't know if the kings themselves were prophets. It was more like there was always a prophet sidekick. I don't mean sidekick, but like sidekick. You know, the Batman to the Robin or the Robin to the Batman that would uh, communicate with God. I'm not saying who's who. Just saying that there were two, two forces. But not necessarily were they the... Uh, with anything. Steve, you, you got something? Yeah, so a question. So when you first encounter the Mishkan, it says, build for me a Mishkan so I may dwell among them. Mm -hmm. So the big question to me is, do we need the temple? Do, the, do we as... Oh! need the temple? Look at this. Is a focal point? Or does Hashem really need the temple? If Hashem is everywhere, and Hashem is omnipotent, omnipotent and Hashem can make his presence known in a cloud and fire and pillars and this and that and the great. miracles. Great. And then the whole point of the Mishkan doesn't seem to make sense as I need a dwelling place among them. You are among them. Good. So Excellent. Why so is it a focal point for worship? Like we as because of our limitations as people, we need a focal point. We need the Mishkan as opposed to Hashem needing a temple or a Mishkan. Excellent question and phrased very well. So, honestly, there are different perspectives. One is exactly what you said. That it's less, it's, less, <laughs> it's less for God, it's more for us. We need that focus. We need that concentration. We need a space to go to where we can say, this is a divine space. This is where I concentrate. This is where I connect. This is my, you know, this is my um, interface, my spiritual interface. So it's helpful for us to have that focus. Um, in other sources, it says, no, that even God has a space, has an has a HQ, has headquarters on, in this earth. Even though God fills the entire earth, there's still headquarters. And the example that's brought in Tanya, actually, is like the soul and the body. Although the soul of life fills the entire body, right? Wiggle, I feel like we're, we're, doing, we're, we're doing a meditation. Close your eyes, wiggle your toes. You don't have to close your eyes. Wiggle your toes, right? Your toes are alive. There's a song. The toes are alive with the sound. Okay. Anyway, the toe, sorry. <laughs> the painful look. The, so your toes are alive. Your soul is not, not in your toes, but it's more in the head than the toe. You nailed it. <sighs> 
Oh, I'm, are you, yeah, yeah. Listen, with a picture of a dog, I'm going to say heel. Joking. Um, whatever. Anyway, so here's my point. The point is, uh, by the way, we do this every Shabbos. It's all, it's, it's a, Steve and I, it's a, it's a routine already now. Um, so, but you know, don't, don't be so concerned about Steve. His bark is uh, way louder than his bite. Um, oh, look at that. Who's that? All right, fine. So here's, here's the deal. Um, the, just like the head is the seat of the consciousness of the human being, and from there the life goes to the rest of the body, so too the temple, the holy temple, was the seat of divine consciousness in the world, and from there it extends. In other words, even God, who's everywhere, also has a, has a headquarters. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the concept. To, why? To get into the why it would be a little bit more elaborate. I don't know if I can tell you exactly that, you know, the, like, nuts and bolts exactly why, but that's the pattern, at least that we can notice, that even when something is all pervasive on some level, the soul and the body, there's still one space that's like central space. Anyway, yeah. Um, Would you please repeat for me what Victor Frankl said? Oh, the botched quote that I made up before. I'm going to tell you the real one. I'm gonna, I, I can look it up now. Now that I'm like not in the middle of the flow over here, I can tell you, Victor Frankel, he who has a why. Okay. Uh, those who have a why to live can bear with almost anyhow. That's the quote. I'm going to actually put in the chat, and that way you'll have it. Those who have a why to live. Okay, no problem. Let me drop this in the chat. Can bear anyhow. Let's do this. Um, send chat to everyone. Boom. By the way, uh, just parenthetically, not that everything is about Chabad, but it is. You know that. Uh, the Rebbe had, a ver- had an interesting relationship with Victor Frankl. Oh, really? Yeah, just Google Lubavitch Rebbe, Victor Frankl, and I'm sure you'll find the story. It's like this wild, incredible story. Frankl was working on his book, and he was getting, or his research, he was getting very frustrated because people were like all into the Freudian model and not his logotherapy, which is about more meaning than other things that drive human behavior, etc., and he was very frustrated, and the Rebbe encouraged him through a messenger to continue his work. Anyway, and he displayed later in his life a fond affection for what the Rebbe did, did for him in those moments of, uh, those crucial moments before he actually published his works. So anyway, just uh, parenthetical. Ray, jump in. Oh, and don't forget to unmute. There you go. Oh, wait. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, not yet. Yes. Um, isn't there... Isn't one of the steps somewhere along the way uh, when you go to build a, a, a temple or a shul, you first have to build the mikvah? Yes, yes. That's a practical consideration. In uh, that's not necessarily connected with Israel, though. The three mitzvot that we said tonight are three connected with the Holy Land. That kind of got triggered when they entered the Holy Land. But you're right. In general, a mikvah is even a more central uh, um, foundation to a community, even more than a synagogue. It says that if you don't have enough money to build a mikvah, but you have a synagogue, sell a Torah and build a mikvah. That's what it says. That's how important a mikvah is. And that requires another class. I, I've been wanting to do this for three years now. A mikvah, a mikvah crawl. Okay, I'm not going to call it. I'm not going to call it that. <laughs> but it, that's what it is. Listen to this. This is what we're going to do. This is the concept. You ready? 
Here's the concept. Here's the concept. All right. Imagine. We get together. Party. There's a... Huh? Party bus, yes, yes. We got, we, got, we got mimosas or whatever it is. And then there's like a talk explaining mikvah. And then we go around. Yeah, and a limo and a party bus and a stretch hummer, whatever it is. Right, you go around, check out the, the beautiful mikvahs in Atlanta around the city. You take a tour, see what a mikvah looks like, right? And just, just check out the situation. Mikvah is a very, um, for whatever reason, it almost feels like shrouded in mystery. It's not that mysterious. But how do you find out about it? You got to check one out. You got to take a tour. They'll show you around and show you how, you know, it's gorgeous. There's spa mikvahs. Yeah, so that's my mikvah crawl idea. I actually, I, listen, it's, I have sometimes good ideas. But this is, yeah, for men and women, it's just to check out a mikvah and see, see what, uh, what's going on. And the, the idea would be to, oh, anyway, so I was planning on doing this before the pandemic and then pandemic. Right, right before the pandemic, and then what? It didn't happen. And then I wanted to do it. I actually put it on the calendar last summer. I put it on the calendar. I figured we'll give ourselves time. I put it on the calendar for I want to say March. We'll see. We'll see if we can do it in March. Maybe. Maybe. It's I know. <laughs> By the way, the logistics are easy. I've already like done the work. I mean, it's like there's three mikvahs or so that we would do. I already got lined. I already lined up the speakers and what? It's a, one call to a party bus company. No big deal. It's it's the other logistics that are out of my control. That are a little out of my control. That's that's what's going on right now. But anyway, at some point, that's the idea to take a look at the mikvah. But yes, uh, that's just a l very elaborate, um, you know. Um, segue from what you asked, Ray. Yeah, mikvahs are really important. Mikvahs are really important. Um, go a fundraiser, Ari. Chabad in town. Commemorative towels. <laughs> Man, you're all wet with that idea. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yes. There you go. Um, Sandrine says that you're appointed as MC of this mikvah crawl. That's it. Um, Pleasure. Oh, thank you. Wow. I'm so, I'm so honored. By the way, they're only going to get better, especially when you're here. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. And Rabbi, Sarah Carter had a question. Yeah, I was just going to get to Sarah. Yeah, Sarah, go jump in. Well, it's more um, that a few years ago, some scientists started a whole symposium of really uh, scientists. Uh, and they were drawn together trying to figure out why the emotional and mental health of so many Americans is going down the drain. And they concluded from their studies, physical studies in different things, that every human being has a need for transcendence. And if that's not met, they'll deteriorate like they were doing. Wow. I thought that was fascinating because these were scientists, social scientists, psychologists, psychiatrists. All these people, and that's what one of the things they concluded that we're, it was called hardwired to connect to something beyond, to not only to people, but to something beyond yourself. That's powerful. And I remember, thank you for mentioning that for everyone, and I remember that you and I corresponded about that some years ago. That's an unbelievable uh, finding. And the truth is, the unbelievable part about it is that it was corroborated by scientists. But the non-unbelievable part of it, the very believable part of it, is that we know it to be true. We know it internally to be true. We could have everything, but without something higher, it just becomes, it just, it's, it's, it's kind of like meaning and purpose is the glue that holds it all together. Without that, it's, life becomes just 
very erratic. It just becomes un, un, ungrounded, if you will. Um, oh, oh, it's unbearable. Yeah. Unbearable. Yeah. It's the it's the 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 weight of being itself is just is just is just itself unbearable. I mean, existence itself is very heavy. Existence itself. I mean, if you think about it, I, let, let's just be very honest here. Yeah, existence we we typically will understand as. Give me a second here. Hold on. Existence will typically understand as you know, the things that we do to assert ourselves and our being, that's a very demanding job. I mean, feeding ourselves every day and taking care of ourselves, it's a demanding job. It could become, frankly, annoying and, and even worse, it become, it's very tedious and annoying. And, and at some point, it's like, what, why? Every single day, all this stuff. That's if you're needy. Then it becomes unbearable. If you're needed... If you're needed, if you feel needed, that's liberating. Somebody says, I need you. Great. Who doesn't want to feel needed? So the question is, are we living a needy life or a needed life? That's the question. And that's where transcendence comes in. This building a temple means that I recognize that God's in my life and God needs me. God put me here on this earth and he needs me. There's a mission that only I can do. So I feel every day I'm waking up, not for myself, again for myself. How boring. Oy, how selfish. Boring. Forget selfish. That's a judgment already. Boring. <laughs> Maybe also judgment. Whatever. Sounds better. But, but if I'm waking up because God needs me to do something, ah, I'm ready to go. It's a paradigm shift. It's a paradigm shift. I, I'm sorry for just dropping this, you know, boom, this idea and not, not really developing it too much. But that's, that's the core. Hey, Mike. Hey, Amy. Good to see you guys. How's it going? Glad that you're joining. Hey, good to hey be there. here. Thanks awesome. for the class. It was really good. Oh, awesome. Pleasure. Yeah. Pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. All right, questions, comments. Let's do one more before we close it out. Who's got... Every time I do that, no one has anything. Ah, all right. It's okay. No, no pressure either way. All right, great to see you all. We'll be back, um, please God, next week. Same bad time, same bad channel for Torah Studies Live. Don't forget, if you're ever craving babka or um, half moon black, black and white cookies, join us in person. Also, oh, very important announcement, VIA. Um, it, this is breaking news. I mentioned it earlier this, earlier this afternoon at our Daily Power PowerShell class. It's not up anywhere. You won't find it on Facebook, in an email, or even online. This is just in my brain, but it's happening. It's confirmed. We are going to have a Zoom event with Marika Feuerstein. She is the granddaughter of Aaron Feuerstein. And if you're wondering who's Aaron Feuerstein, let me drop a phrase on you. The mensch of Malden Mills. There was a guy who owned a factory. Malden Mills. Karen, do you remember this guy? Yeah? Yeah, he was the one um, that actually, when the, when the mill burned, he supported his entire staff, all of his employees. 3,000 employees, 3,000 of them out of his own pocket. He continued to pay them even though everything was burnt down as he was trying to rebuild the company. What happens next, though, is even more remarkable. 
His grand, he passed away just a few months ago. He passed away at the age of 95. His granddaughter is going to be speaking in one of her first public appearances ever, exclusive for us. This is big. She's going to be speaking about the story and her family's story and the aftermath and the challenges that were created in the family. Talk about an act of heroism that has perhaps unintended consequences on the family. This event is being called After the Fire, and you do not want to miss this one. Save the date. It is February 21st in the evening, February 21st. Look out for an email in the next day or two. As soon as I get a design, I got, I got, the, I got the messaging. I just need my, my designer to, to hook us up with the design. February 21st, it's a Monday night. It should be a Monday night if my calculation is correct. Monday, February 21st in the evening, save that evening. Marika Feuerstein, she is fantastic. Her journey, her story, her grandfather's story is just absolutely breathtaking. Yeah. I, I thought of one more thing regarding the you know tour study tonight, which I you know got too late. But um, you know, I was thinking about the Mishkan relevant to and the need for a Mishkan relevant to the pandemic. So you know, as Steve had mentioned, uh, you know, they were out in the wilderness and God was presenting Himself, you know, in a cloud, uh, you know, at fire at night. So why the Mishkan? But right. if you think about it in terms of the pandemic, um, technically speaking, we, each of us, could commune or feel God's presence alone during the pandemic. However, there was a huge void. I don't know about others, but for me, um, without that community, without that, um, that, that centralized place where we gather to feel God's presence and to, and to daven and to, um, and, and, and to feel connected. Yeah. So I kind of it's powerful. You know, I was just thinking about how necessary the Mishkan is even today. And yeah, I love, I love that. I think you're, I think you're spot on, right? Even as we can find God anywhere or sorry, everywhere, everywhere. there's still, there's still a, some power in a, in a communal centralized space. Very, very well put. And I will say also, maybe we'll conclude with this idea, that it says in the good books that every shul, every synagogue, every Chabad house um, is a mini, today, nowadays, is a mini version of the temple. In other words, back in the day, there was one holy temple in Jerusalem, but today we don't have a temple in Jerusalem, but all of the synagogues, all of the, the, the sacred spaces are a mini version of the temple. When Mashiach comes, it says, all the Chabad houses and other places will become part of the base of Middash. What exactly that means, I don't know, <coughs> but we'll have a wing there. We'll definitely have a wing there, and uh, it'll be good. So thank you for joining tonight. Thank you for being part of our community. You know, we have different models of community. This is our space as well. So thank you for being part of it, and wishing everybody an Erev Tov. Laila Tov, good evening, and see you guys soon. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Pleasure. Thank you.